Psalm chapter number one this evening. We're going to begin reading. Obviously, you'll recognize uh, the psalm as we begin to read. And uh, I'm sure it was by uh, divine intervention that God allowed this psalm in particular to be placed at the front of the book that we know as Psalms. Uh, What a beautiful psalm it is. And it starts out the right way and sets the tone for the entire book. Here we find in verse number one of Psalm 1, the Bible says, Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. You know, you can find a lot of stuff in God's Word. You can find satisfaction. You can find peace and contentment. When your delight is in God's Word, I believe this for the Christian, you'll find everything you need. The Bible goes on to say, His delight is in the law of the Lord, and in His law doth He meditate day and night. Verse number 3, And He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water, that bringeth forth His fruit in His season, His leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever He doeth shall prosper. The ungodly are not so, but are like the chaff which the wind driveth away. Therefore the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knoweth the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. I want to preach a sermon entitled to you this evening, A Fruitful Life. Man, I want a fruitful Christian life. I want to be a a, a child of God that accomplishes things for His glory. I want to be someone who actually does something for Jesus. I don't want to be like every other Christian who does nothing and lives their life as if uh, no greater cause is there to serve. Like David, I feel sometimes I want to stand up on the nearest mountain that I can and just say to all my Christian brethren, Friend, do you not see the great cause that there is in serving the Lord Jesus Christ? And I want my life to make a difference. I want it to matter. I want to be a fruitful Christian for Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. We thank you for the opportunity to meet around your word this evening. Please bless and meet with us in a very special way, I ask. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You know, we as human beings love our gray areas. We love them. And you say, well, not me, Brother Andrew, I'm a black and white type of individual. I, I, yay and nay, that defines my life. Okay, so do you ever find yourself doing that thing where you go five miles over the speed limit? Because I gray area that all the time. Now, uh, I know we have at least one police officer in the room, and I'm sure we have some others maybe here tonight or listening. When I'm around y'all, I never do five over, but I do five over pretty religiously every other time. Someone once told me that uh, police officers kind of give you a little mercy, a little grace. But really, that's not the law. The law is what? It's a speed limit. But how many of us go and we enforce ourselves at this little gray area and we kind of make up our own imaginary speed limit as if the sign actually reads 62 miles an hour? But it doesn't. We love our gray areas. You say, not me, Brother Andrew, I I don't do that kind of thing. Well, you're a better person than I. What about when yellow lights occur? I believe in all of driving, there is nothing more confusing than the yellow light. 
And I promise you in the state of Texas, the amount of time allotted for a yellow light is different than that in California. I promise you. Or I was just going much faster in California. I'm not sure. But I believe this, man. When that thing turns yellow, how many times have you said to yourself, oh, I've got plenty of time. I don't even need to gun it. We, you know, we, we don't need to press on the accelerator. We'll just continue at the rate of speed that we're traveling and we'll make it in plenty of time only to have that light switch on you right before your front tire crosses that line and you say, well, didn't quite make that one. I didn't make that one. When Burleson installed their uh, stop cameras or their, their ticket cameras that take your picture if you, if you do run a yellow light, man, the, for the first few months it didn't really affect anybody, but when everybody started receiving the tickets, you noticed it because people would be 10 feet from the line, it would turn yellow, and they would slam on their brakes, and, you know, it was good for the city of Burleson because then they had auto accidents that the police could actually go and, you know, deal with, so... But man, we, we like our gray areas, don't we? I find myself, ever since Burleson did install those cameras, I find myself, if it's even close, man, it's pedal to the metal just to make sure I do get over that line. It's a very convoluted gray area, is it not? You say, not me, Brother Andrew. I'm not much of a gray area kind of Christian. Okay, husband. When your wife comes home with a new hairdo, You're not a gray area person. But when she comes home and she asks you if you like it, you don't. Men don't like change. We get accustomed to the way our wife looks. In fact, we we grow fond of it. We, We are comfortable without the change and the beautiful flowing locks that our wife has. And then one day she schedules a hair appointment and undoes what time did and beauty uh, happened over that great period of time. She comes home with a, 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 a haircut that you did not approve of. I mean, with, with as much as they look at Pinterest, you think occasionally they just say, hey, what do you think about this? But no, they don't ask our opinion. They come home with this haircut and now we are forced to say... Yeah, it looks good, honey. It looks good. Now, men, you know that to be true, you're not being truthful. Because you don't like change. And you'd rather it just stayed the same that it was. We enjoy our gray areas, but all throughout God's Word, it does its very best to eliminate them. God's Word is a yay and nay type of book. It really gives two options in most scenarios. You see, uh, it talks about a narrow way and a broad way. It talks about the first atom and the last atom. No atoms in between or after matter. You're either living in Christ or dying with your father Adam. The Bible talks many times about heaven and hell. There's no purgatory. There's no uh, uh, place that you can go or, or reincarnation. The Bible says when we die, we're either present with the Lord or away from His presence in hell. That's what the Bible says. Really only two options. And the Bible goes out of its way. And really you find this over and over. Read the book of Proverbs and you'll find that there's really only two types of people in this world. There are the wise and there are the foolish. Bible tells us that there is a spiritual man and a natural man. You're one of the two. 
The Bible tells us that you are either a child of God or a child of the devil. That's what it says. And as much as we love our gray areas, when you start reading this book, it will eliminate the gray areas that we grow comfortable in. And certainly this first chapter of Psalms does that. See, this first chapter of Psalms sets forth two options. A man that loves and walks in God's word or rejects it and deals with the consequences. And tonight we're going to take a look at what occurs in the life of the man who embraces God's word and and chooses to obey it and honor it with his life. And we'll start by looking at this. Number one, this chapter lays out, first of all, a choice of trust. The chapter begins and says in verse number one, Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful, and if you're not careful, Christian, you're going you're gonna to read this psalm and be misled as to the main ingredient or the main focus of this psalm. And it is not who you hang around or it is not who, uh, who you might befriend. And, and while I believe we're going off with the glasses because that's terribly annoying, but I, I believe that it's a good thing to... Uh, Brother Ashley, you can do whatever you want right now, brother. I have no idea. <laughs> Could not tell you at all. So praise the Lord, Brother Ashley, you don't have to pay attention at all this evening. Good news. But I believe the Bible talks about who you hang around with and who you befriend and, 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 and the, the people that kind of are, are influencing your life. And, and, and there are other passages to explain that. And this verse, no doubt, is a support passage for that. But the passage of Scripture that we're studying tonight is in regards to your trust and dependence upon God's Word. And and in the very first two verses, we find it lays out a choice. And that choice is, who will be the influence in your life? You see, first of all, there is an influence of the wicked or the sinner or the ungodly in your life. And second of all, you see in verse number 2, His delight is in the law of the Lord. And you know what the Bible tells us? It's telling us here, it's your prerogative. You can choose the wicked way. You can choose to be influenced by sinful things. And I want you to see that the Bible tells us in James chapter 4 that whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. And so if you want to identify with sinners and you want to be a part of the world and you want to be involved in that type of lifestyle, the Bible says you cannot serve God the way you should. Billy Graham said this, self-centered indulgence, pride, and a lack of shame over sin are now emblems of the American lifestyle. Boy, and I tell you what, if Billy Graham, when he was at his heyday and able to say things like that, said that, man, we've come a long way from even when he said those words. I'll never forget one day sitting on an airplane uh, next to a gentleman. I could tell he wasn't from around here. He had an accent. Uh, And uh, I don't much like to engage the people uh, that I sit next to in the plane for fear that they're crazy. Um, so I, I, I don't much, I kind of do the whole, you know, this is my very small bubble. Thank you, Southwest Airlines. And you have your very small bubble and, uh, uh, you just kind of stay to yourself and I'll stay to myself. 
But this particular day, I found uh, myself uh, opening the Bible, and I had my tray down, and I was opening the Bible. I was studying. I believe I was studying for a sermon that I would preach here at church, and I was on my way back, and and I had my Bible open, and, and the man kind of interrupted me. And, and, and once I had packed up my Bible, he, he kind of spoke out and he said, uh, Sir, what is your name? And I told him, my name's Andrew. And I could tell from his accent that he was, he was a foreigner. You know, that man began to tell me that he was a Christian. And he says he was very discouraged because this was his very first trip to America. And he said he'd been here nearly two weeks at a business conference and he had always heard of America and Christianity and and how it just is our culture. And he said in his two weeks in America, I was the first indication of any Christian that he had seen. He began to tell me that he was actually from Ghana, Africa. And he was appalled at the way our laws in this land were. In fact, he began to tell me that in his homeland, it is against the law to be a homosexual. And he couldn't believe that this Christian environment, this Christian world that he had heard so much about was now legalizing these types of things that were clearly uh, against God's word. America, as we know it, is, is far removed from her religious heyday, if you will. But it doesn't matter where America is so much as it matters where you are. Because the Bible tells us that we are in this world, but we're not to be a part of this world. We we are uh, in this world, but the Bible tells us greater is he that is in us than he that is in this world. And so your choice is this. Will you honor God's word and obey its commandments or will you reject it and deal with the consequences? It's up to you. During the Bible conference, Dr. House preached uh, a message, and, and, and I've shared this with several people, and actually Brother Jim and, and Brother Brian and I were around the bed of a pickup yesterday discussing it, and, and I think it was Brother Jim mentioned this particular passage of Scripture, and it spoke to me just like it did him. And he talked about when Dr. House mentioned uh, uh, the verse in the Bible that says, Pure religion and undefiled is this, to visit the widow and the fatherless. I even told this to the teenagers this morning, the grand impact that it made on my life, hearing him explain how this verse was not just speaking of a visit of going and being somewhere, but it was speaking of a visit of ministering grace like God the Son ministered to us when he visited us in our time of need. It was a profound portion of his message, just tremendously helpful to me. But I want you to know the verse, as we know it, does not end there. The Bible tells us pure religion and undefiled is this, to visit the widow and fatherless and to keep yourself unspotted from the world. You see, you can't have religion and just be a minister. There's a lot of non-religious ministers I've met in this thing of, of, of ministry. No, ministry is is not just serving. Ministry is being what you're trying to help others to be. Or at least trying to be what you know others should should try to be. You see, we have the choice to honor God's word and live by its truth or reject it. And it is your choice. It's your prerogative. Number two, notice with me, if you will, the progression that we see in verse number one. 
When I pause, we're going to read verse number one. And when I pause, I want you to read the very next word. You'll read three words throughout the verse, but I want to draw your attention to three words. When I pause, you say the next word. Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. Now, someone that's just reading over this verse might just take a look at this and and kind of imagine that the psalmist was needing just different adjectives to explain someone being there. But I want you to imagine this evening a, a skunk right here on stage with me, okay? And I know this is a strange illustration, but stay with me if you will. And uh, this skunk is not a pleasant skunk. This is the smelliest skunk you've ever seen or smelt. It's so smelly you can actually see it. Yes, I said that. Thank you. This skunk is right here in the middle of the the stage. And uh, it's uh, doing its darned level best to make me aware of his presence. Now, I want you to notice a progression in verse number one by using this skunk as an analogy, if you will. The first word mentioned is this, walketh. You see, if I'm away from the skunk and I walk by the skunk, at some point or another, I'm going to smell the skunk, but the skunk will not always affect me. Do you understand that? And I can walk by the skunk and it will affect me. But once I get on the upwind side of it, I'm no longer going to smell that skunk because I'm affected and I'm moving past the struggle. I'm moving past the problem. But the second word is this, standeth. Now, we mentioned that if the skunk were in the middle of the stage and, and I walk past the skunk, it would affect me for at least a little while. But now notice this. If I stand by the skunk, boy, things have gotten a lot worse, haven't they? There's no relief from the odor that the skunk produces. I mean, it is grandly affecting me. I'm standing right next to it, and it's affecting me in a great way. Here we are. I'm standing next to it. But now I want you to notice the third word. The first word was walking. Am I right? And walking, it kind of gives the indication that you're, you're, you're affected by it, but only temporarily. Now you're standing by this skunk, and it affects you permanently, but not totally. But the third word is this, sitteth. Now if this skunk is here in the middle of the platform, and, and I walked by it, and now I'm standing by it, there's only one way I can get closer to it, and that's if I pop a squat by it. Here I am, nose right next to the business end of a skunk. You think that might get a little frustrating? You think that I might have a little bit of a sour attitude? Let me ask you this, Christian. Do you think I might be affected by the skunk's attitude towards me? Absolutely. And the progression, while I know that's a silly analogy... If we replace that skunk with wicked people or wicked thoughts or wicked deeds, the illustration holds true. Christian, a lot of us have walked by sin too long. It no longer affects us. And and the natural progression of sin is this. Oh, we look. Then we linger. Then we live. You say, no, Brother Andrew, I'm not one of those types of Christians. Well, Brother Lot was. 
It began with a look. It became a longing. Then he went and lived. The progression is this. You cannot play with sin and stay unaffected. A D.L. Moody said this, and I believe it to be true. He said, sin will keep you from this book or this book will keep you from sin. The Bible tells it like this. Wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his way by taking heed according to the word of God? Christian, if you're going to live a holy life pleasing to God, a life that shuns sin and glorifies God, a life that we would recognize that is worthy of Him, we have got to come out of this idea that it is okay to be influenced at every level by sin. Too many pulpits, as preacher mentioned this morning, have just removed any type of mention of sin and hell from the pulpit. But I'm telling you right now, Christian, that's why we are so unaware of its effects on our families. You say, Brother Andrew, it's not affecting me. I promise it is. I remember things that we used to be appalled at on TV. Now we just look past them as if we are ignoring them. And we'll get to the good parts of the show coming up. What a shame it is. The Bible tells us here that there is a choice of trust, and it is your choice, but recognize there's a prerogative and a progression to sin. You choose wrong, you will be affected by sin and its consequences. Number two, I want you to notice with me a a picture of a tree. Now there's a choice to trust, but there's now a picture of a tree. And this picture is to us... Uh, an idea or a concept of what the person who embraces and accepts God's word as life-changing and embraces its power and obeys its commands, now God gives us a picture of a tree. And he says this about the tree, number one in verse number three, notice this. And he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water. Now, God says, if you obey God's word and accept God's word and live and abide in God's word, you will become planted like a tree. We people, whether no longer how you've been, how long you've been saved, we by nature are a wobbly sort of folk, aren't we? We have our tendencies to have our high moments and our low moments. Uh, we we, we kind of swing between crazy and sane, don't we? Or at least our wives do. Um, <laughs> Brother Frey, it's ironic you would be the one to say that. Um, <laughs> you know, I'm just kidding, Brother Frey. I'm just playing with you, buddy. Miss Frey's like, I don't mind at all. <laughs> Didn't bother me. We are, though, a, a fickle people at best. And God's word now promises us that when we will value God's word in our life, that we will become rooted and established. Let me explain it to you like this. One day growing up, me and my sister were frolicking. We were, as we did on occasion, we were having a good time. Is Mandy here this evening? I I don't know. Probably. Okay. Mandy, you here? Oh, there you are. Okay. I'll have to be careful the way I tell the story now. Um, 
<laughs> One day my sister and I were playing as uh, we did on occasion and uh, we were riding the four-wheeler. It was a white four-wheeler. It was a, a, a fast four-wheeler, but it was very top-heavy. You had to be careful with the way you drove it. And uh, Mandy had a tendency to be bigger than me. And with that tendency, had a tendency to get her way when she wanted it. Uh, not because parents had anything to say about it, but Mandy was bigger than me, and she kind of enforced her way upon me. And... I remember one day I wanted to ride the four-wheeler, but Mandy wasn't letting me ride the four-wheeler. So Mandy decided to initiate this game of four-wheeler tag. Let me explain to you how the game works. Mandy is on the four-wheeler. I am not. Mandy chases me around with the four-wheeler. I run from the four-wheeler. I'll never forget, obviously, even as a young kid, I realized I can't outrun the four-wheeler, so I had to outthink the four-wheeler, or at least the person on it. And, and so we got, Dad had a cab that went on the back of his pickup truck, and it was there on some cinder blocks. And, uh, you know, when someone's faster than you, this is the strategy that I implemented in, in TAG. I got on the other side of an object. And whenever that person made a step in a direction, I stepped the opposite direction. And I kept that object in between me and the person. So this is the strategy that I implemented against Mandy. She's on the other side of the object, this, this uh, uh, cab that comes off my dad's truck. It's there on the ground. And I'm standing on this side of the object. And, and now Mandy goes this way and I run this way. And we're going around and around and around. And before too long, I mentioned that the four-wheeler was a little top-heavy, and I guess Mandy may have lost a little bit of control, but right next to the cab was a tree. And Mandy decided to add an, a, a, someone to the game. See, before it was just me and Mandy. Now, Mandy apparently wanted to tag the tree. Because I'll never forget, man, we're running around and she hit that tree and it dented the front of the four-wheeler, bent the rails around. And, uh, you know, it was great to see Mandy's face. Uh, uh, it was just a wonderful time of victorious celebration. A little bit like David and Goliath, you know, the younger sibling outmatched by the older sibling and the giant four-wheeler. And I just had one sling and uh, five smooth stones and, and a tree. And uh, with that... The giant came tumbling down. Amen. It was a great day. You know, while that tree greatly affected that four-wheeler, you know how much that four-wheeler affected that tree? None at all. You see, because the tree is planted. It's rooted. It's established. And we are a people that is very fickle. We find ourselves waffling back and forth, like the hymn writer said, prone to leave the God I feel it, prone to wander and leave the God I love. He, he recognized how we are. And it would be good if you recognized that about yourself. And, and when we get out of God's word, we become more sporadic in our movements away and to God. But it is only in God's word that we get rooted and established in Him. And we find true stability. And we find our true center on the platform of God's holy word. We become like a tree that is planted. Friend, let me ask you, what kind of tragedy in your life would it take? 
to make your beliefs begin to change. How many times I've seen people that I looked up to and admired only to have a tragedy beset them and it totally changed the individual that I thought I knew. A wife leaves them or a wife makes them choose or a a, a child looks at them and says, I'm never going to church again. It's amazing what type of tragedies will get people's beliefs to change. You see, when your beliefs are rooted and established in God's Word, tragedy does not change you because God's Word doesn't change in tragedy. The picture of a tree, and that tree is planted, number two. A picture of a tree, and that tree is productive. Verse number three, the Bible says this, And he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water, and that bringeth forth fruit in his season. You know, the Bible has much to say about a fruitful Christian. And the Bible says in John 15, 5, He is the vine and we are the branches. If we will abide in Him, we will bring forth much fruit. For, with him, for without Him, we can do nothing. We, if we are to live a fruitful Christian life, we are to stay rooted in God. And I believe that is through His Word. John 15, 5, we are to abide in Him. And if we abide in Him, the promise in Galatians 5 of bringing forth spiritual fruits or fruits of the Spirit, I believe, will be naturally flowing. We will bring forth love and joy and peace, long-suffering gentleness, meekness. We'll bring forth faith, temperance, goodness. And we'll do those things naturally because we are abiding in Christ. But I want you to notice this about this verse. In every Christian's life, there will come seasons with no fruit. Look, I want you to see this in verse number 3. That bringeth forth his fruit, say the next words with me, in his season. I do not know of a tree that has fruit on it year round. I do not know of a single tree, uh, except maybe a mesquite, (laughs) but but there are only a few, a handful of trees that even have leaves all year round, much, much less fruit. But the verse is very clear that if we stay rooted and established in God's word and we stay honoring it with our life, you will bring forth fruit, but only in your season. And there will be times when you don't see that fruit. And however you want to apply the verse, whether that's fruit in soul winning or whether that's fruit, spiritual fruits like we just mentioned in Galatians 5, you can apply it what what, what way you see fit in Scripture. I'm not going to tell you how it applies, but I will tell you this. This verse says you will have fruitless seasons. It does not say you will have leafless seasons. Notice with this, notice this in verse number 3. His leaf also shall not wither. Now there will be times in your life, I am certain, when you feel that you are not close to God. There will be times in your life when you feel your prayers get no higher than the ceiling. 
There will be times in your life when you feel like you're not affecting anybody for the gospel's sake and you're trying to serve and maybe you're a bus director and you've been knocking on door after door after door. You're not seeing kids come. You know what that is? That's a fruitless season. But you know what your effort is that is the product of your relationship. You see, because the leaf never withers. The leaf never disappears. The fruit is a blessing of God. The leaf is the product of your relationship with God. The leaf never withers. You say, Brother Andrew, do you believe in such a thing as a backslidden Christian? Oh, sure. Do I believe in a Christian that constantly lives in sin? No, I don't believe in that type of Christian at all. How can you know the God that I know and choose sin over Him? Oh, you're going to have times that you don't see fruit. And you're going to have times like King David did where, where maybe life isn't a, a, such a great relationship with God and, and you're going to have those fruitless times. And even King Solomon had those times, certainly. But at the end of the day, your leaf ought to always represent and show forth your root. Your fruit is produced by the root, your relationship with Jesus Christ. There's a fruitfulness of Christianity and that is a productive Christian. Not only is the tree planted, not only is the tree productive. Notice this, the tree is prosperous. Verse number 3 continues and says this. He shall be like a uh, tree planted by the rivers of water that bringeth forth his fruit in his season. His leaf also shall not wither. And finish the verse with me. And whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. I don't know if you're in the habit of underlining in your Bible, but if you are, that might be a good part to underline. And whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. You know, there's some whatsoever verses in the Bible that I got to be honest with you are very difficult to swallow. They're, they're whatsoever commands. Let me read you a few of them if you don't mind. Matthew seven twelve. There, therefore, all things whatsoever ye would that men should do unto you, do ye even so to them. You know, it's hard to treat somebody like you want to be treated all the time. It's the golden rule. It's, it's trying to live out uh, relationships like the relationships you want to have. Be the friend that you want to have. But sometimes I don't feel like being all that friendly. Sometimes I don't feel like being all that kind. The Bible tells us here that whatsoever we would that men would do unto us, we are to do to men. That's a hard whatsoever command. Matthew 28 verse 20 says, Teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. Do you know when Jesus left this earth, he said, Here, I want you to go win people. I want you to go tell them about my kingdom. I want you to go see people saved. But don't you think seeing people saved is the only thing I'm asking you to do? I want you to teach them how to be like me. We have to not only tell, tell sinners that they need to be saved, we, need, we actually, every time we witness to someone, are telling them, essentially, you need to be less like you and more like my master. And that's a tough whatsoever command. Jesus told the rich young ruler, whatsoever you have, take it and sell it and give that up to the poor. It was a hard whatsoever command for him because he left that day without a relationship with Christ. John 15, 4 tells us, Ye are my friends if ye do whatsoever I command you. 
Anything Christ asks us to do, Jesus says our relationship will be judged upon our obedience to what He's commanded us to do. That's a tough whatsoever promise. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31 says, Whether therefore ye eat or drink or whatsoever ye do, do all to the glory of God. Did you know there is not a single thing in your life that you do not represent God in? Everything. If you're playing checkers with your family, you're playing checkers for the glory of God. And it's hard. I'll be honest with you. It's hard for me to recognize that sometimes. Oh, certainly when I'm up here preaching and when I'm out representing the church, I feel like I'm representing the Lord. But even when I'm sitting in my pajamas, did you know preachers wear pajamas too? Even when I'm wearing pajamas sitting in front of my TV, I am doing that to the glory of God. Or at least I'm supposed to be. That's a hard whatsoever command. You know, the Bible is full of them. Colossians chapter 3 says, And whatsoever ye do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not unto men. Even if you're employed by a secular employer, you're employed by Alcon, you're a contractor. You know what the Bible tells us? You are employed for the glory of God and your work is to represent Him in your workplace. That's hard stuff. Galatians 6, this is a very hard whatsoever promise. Be not deceived, God is not mocked, for whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. See what I mean? These whatsoever promises are hard. You know why? Because they're universal and they're binding. Jesus didn't say, if you're my friends, you'll probably think about doing what I'm asking you to do. No, he said, if you're my friends, you'll do what I asked you to do. These are universal commands and they are binding commands. And and to be very frank with you, they're hard to swallow all of them. That's tough stuff. And I say all that to say this. Whenever God says whatsoever, it is universal and binding. Now read with me the last part of verse 3 again. And whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. All the whatsoever commands I read off to you are delivered to you and they bind you. Not grievously, I don't mean to say that, but they are to you. This one, however, is binding to God. Don't miss this. Sure, you're to treat people the right way. God says that's universal and binding. You're to, uh, 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 you're to recognize that every man receives the wages for his work. You're to recognize that it's universal and binding. But when God says, and whatsoever the man that honors my word does, I will make it profitable. Realize this, Christian. God is shackling himself to the promise. It is inescapable, it is universal, and it is absolutely binding to God that if you will honor God's word in your life, every endeavor you set out on will be profitable to the glory of God. Whatsoever you do. If I am to honor God in my pajamas in front of my TV, you know what God says? I'll make that profitable for you. I will make your soul winning endeavors profitable Every track Brother Andrew ever makes on his computer, I will make that profitable. Because whatsoever you do, I will make it profitable. 
businessmen in this room, this ought to be a verse that you store away in your heart. That God right here tells you that if you will build your business upon the precepts of His Word, He will help you be profitable. And I'm not talking about the books here. I'm talking about He will help you make a difference in this world. You can be profitable. This tree is going to be planted. This tree is going to be profitable. And this tree is going to be productive. You think of uh, Daniel in the Babylonian kingdom, just a little Hebrew boy. And yet, even in the select group that he was in, God honored him and promoted him, did he not? Oh, you think of Joseph going through Potiphar's house, just a servant boy, but God honored him and promoted him. Then he had a setback, right? Where did he go after that? He went to prison. And even in prison, God honored and promoted him. God will make your life profitable if you will honor his word. So this evening we've looked at a picture of a tree. We've looked at a choice to trust. And I want you to notice thirdly tonight, a promise of tragedy. You see, the first promise, a picture of a tree is given to those people who choose correctly. Choose to acknowledge God's word as the rule of their life. Choose to live by the precepts that are spelled out in God's word. And then your life will resemble the tree. But now the chapter changes tones. And in verse number four, it begins to promise a tragedy for those that choose incorrectly. We won't study all of the verses, but I'll notice this in verse number four. The ungodly are not so, but are like the chaff which the wind driveth away. Now, we don't recognize much about what wheat and the process of harvesting, but this would have certainly rung true and, 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 and effectively to the people in the day that was reading this passage of Scripture. And let me explain it to you the best that I can. You see, in wheat, you have a stalk of wheat, and you have what we call the head of wheat, you understand. That head of wheat, you might have seen it on Cheerios, like a box of Cheerios. It's, you've, you know what wheat looks like. And there's many different little seeds on that, on that stalk of wheat. In the stalk of wheat at the top, what we would call the head, each little bitty wheat has a, a protective layer that's kind of similar to paper. And it wraps, almost as a cocoon would wrap a, 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 a caterpillar. It, it, it snugs it. And in fact, when you look at wheat, you're not actually looking at the seed. You're looking at the chaff. And you know the little hairy things that come off? They, they kind of all poke off. And that's what makes gives the wheat its height. What you're looking at is you're looking at the protective layer. And that sprig, if you will, that is the chaff. So when people would harvest their wheat, they would bring it in and they would take bundles of wheat and they would bind those bundles together. And you might have uh, 50 or so different uh, stalks of wheat. And, 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 and oftentimes the harvesters, and, and many times this was a lady that would do this portion of the harvesting, they'll sit down and underneath they'll have a mat of some type and they'll take a club or a stone or some type of blunt force object and, and they'll begin to beat the head of the wheat. The, the, right at the top, right where you would recognize the head. They'll, they'll just start beating it with whatever they have. Over and over, vigorously, they'll beat this wheat. And what they're trying to accomplish is, as the wheat is hit, and traumatized by the blunt force of the object that is impacting it, 
the, the chafe as we know it opens up and essentially ejects the seed. Now on their mat they have the fruit of the wheat. They have what they've been growing. They've had the, they have now the goal. Everything that they've invested in, all the sowing and all, all of that, the harvesting and all of it, now rests on the mat that has been placed underneath this area of work. They take the stalk that has been bundled up and lay it aside. Discard it. Because it serves no purpose other than containing the seed. When verse 4 tells us that the ungodly are like the chafe of wheat, it is essentially saying it is an empty life. See, the chafe does nothing. It is outward appearance. There is no purpose served other than maybe kindling. The actual product rests underneath. The chafe only served as a protective layer. Now that the chafe has no longer is doing its one sole purpose, which is to protect the seed, they discard the, 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 the stalk, they discard the chaff, and they utilize the seed. The lesson is this. A Christian or a non-Christian that chooses to ignore God's word is an empty life that serves no eternal purpose. That's the life. That's the lesson. And that's why when you read verses 4 through 6, it is a tragic waste of a life. How many Christians do you know personally that are more of a 4 through 6 Christian? How many Christians do you know that probably would mark Christian on their Facebook? Probably would claim to be Christian if ever polled in a public place. But their life doesn't represent that. It's a tragic waste is what the Bible's saying. They ignore God's word entirely. The relationship that they have with Jesus has only served to them the same as a get it out of jail card. Except it's a get out of hell card. They want no more Jesus in their life than the Jesus they currently have. That's just enough for them. You know what that is? A wasted and empty life with no eternal purpose. There's a man by the name of C.T. Studd. This man was born into a wealthy family. He grew up and he went to Cambridge University and became a world-renowned cricket player. He actually became world famous. People knew him all around the world. And when choosing his career, C.T. Studd said this. He said, I know that cricket would not last and honor would not last and nothing in this world would last, but it was worthwhile living for the world to come. He recognized sports and cricket were temporary and so... He chose to serve God with his life. He left England and went to China under the oversight of the famous missionary Hudson Taylor. C.T. Studd is actually famous for saying this quote, and you'll probably recognize it. You've heard it before, surely. Some want to live within the sound of a church or chapel bell. I want to run a rescue shop within a yard of hell. 
C.T. Studd served many years, 10 years in China. And then his father died, leaving him a sizable inheritance. I mentioned he was born into a wealthy family. That inheritance was his to claim, but when, it was not- when he was notified of this, he gave almost all of that wealth to different evangelical missionaries and de- missions endeavors. D.L. Moody was one of the benefactors from that. He essentially abandoned any type of earthly gain that he could have had from that, and he gave it all to Christianity. He returned to England briefly, and then he felt called to pastor a church in southern India. For seven years, he served in southern India, and then he felt called to the jungles of Africa. Man, I'm telling you what, this guy was committed to Jesus. (laughs) He wanted to go anywhere and everywhere he could, and so he decided he was going to spend the rest of his years serving in the darkest jungles of Africa. He, while there, stories are told that he contracted a great case of malaria. Healed from that only to find himself one night wake up to a, one of the most poisonous stakes in the world that had been sleeping next to him as well. He lived out his days there in Africa. He essentially died in Africa. Seventy years old. During his seventy years on this earth, he wrote over 200 hymns. He translated the New Testament into the native tongue and witnessed thousands of African people turn to the Lord. Lived a great life, a life of purpose, a fruitful life, if you will. I say all that to say this. He wrote a poem. In fact, he's probably not very famous for the things that he did. He's more famous for this poem. The poem is entitled, Only One Life to Live. And it's longer than what I'm going to read you. I'm just going to read you the last four stanzas of this poem. But if you will, pay as much attention as you can, because as soon as we say this, I'll I'll close. This is one of the most impactful poems from any Christian author I've ever heard, especially when you consider it wasn't just made up. It wasn't just hyperbole. It was his life. He said this, Give me, Father, a purpose deep. In joy or sorrow, thy word to keep. Faithful and true, whatever the strife, pleasing thee in my daily life. Only one life to live, twill soon be past. Only what's done for Christ will last. Oh, let my love with fervor burn. And from the world let me now turn, living for thee and thee alone, bringing thee pleasure on thy throne. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, yes, only one. Now let me say, thy will be done. And when at last I'll hear thy call, I know I'll say, "'Twas worth it all. Only one life, twill soon be past. Only what's done for Christ will last. <laughs> Only one life, twill soon be past. Only what's done for Christ will last. And when I am dying, how happy I'll be if the lamp of my life has been burned out for thee. Christian, that is a fruitful Christian life.